Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast that checks in every week with the people at the centre of the debates about where Canadian policy should be headed, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak with the thinkers, doers and deciders about how good policy can make for a better Canada. We'll be putting out a new episode every Thursday, so please join us weekly if you're up for a deep dive into the policy choices in front of us and the trade-offs involved. Here's the host of Policy Speaking, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of the Globe and Mail. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I'm Edward Greenspawn. Today, we're talking about a topic on everyone's minds right now, the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, and the vaccines more broadly. Some people have had them, some people are in line to have them. Uh, everyone knows you know, how critical they are to returning to some form of, of normalcy and to you know, fighting back against this awful pandemic that we've had. So today we'll be joined by Dr. Alan Bernstein, President and CEO of the global research organization CIFAR, one of Canada's uh, gifts to the world, and formerly the founding president of the Canadian Institute for, of Health Research, and as well by Dr. Vivek Goel, the incoming president of the University of Waterloo and previously the founding president and CEO of Public Health Ontario. And uh, Katie, instead of our normal pre-interview chat, uh, you'll be joining us for the main conversation. Yeah, it'll be a little bit new, so I'm really excited for that. And uh, before we move into our interview, though, I'd like to thank the Diversity Institute and the Future Skills Centre for partnering with Public Policy Forum to bring you policy speaking in February and March. Both the Diversity Institute and the Future Skills Centre are valued partners of PPF, and their work contributes greatly to the conversation around innovation, skills, diversity, and inclusion in Canada. And we've actually got a fantastic program kicking off with the Diversity Institute just this week um, on skills for the post-pandemic future. So stay tuned for that. Okay, well, that's great. And uh, let's move on to the main interview. With that, I'd like to welcome both Dr. Alan Bernstein to the show today, as well as Dr. Vivek Goel. And thank you both for being with us uh, on Policy Speaking again. Great to be here. You're welcome, Ed. It's nice to be here. Okay, Alan, I'm going to just start with you quickly. And you were on the podcast on September 3rd, and we went back and revisited uh, what you said. And we have no clips to say to show that you were wrong or anything like that. Actually, you're right about everything. But, you know, our own promotion, you know, talked about optimism and that you were optimistic we would have a COVID-19 vaccine soon. And it also characterized the discussion as, uh, you know, being cautious about some of the deals done and the issue of manufacturing vaccine and public trust of the vaccine. That. So now we're six months later. Have we progressed in a way that you've expected? Actually, I think we have progressed faster than I expected, because look where we are today. Here we are in third or fourth week of March, we have um, four vaccines now approved by Health Canada. Vaccines have been rolling out. Uh, here in Ontario, we're at least a week or if not two weeks ahead of schedule in terms of the rollout. If, and if we look at other countries, because when you said we, Ed, we to me is the world. If you look at the world, we're behind in terms of vaccinating people in, for example, the developing world. But 400 million uh, vaccines have now been administered, uh, largely in Europe and North America, of course, uh, and we will get to Africa as soon as possible, I hope. But 400 million vaccines by the third week of March, roughly a year and change since we recognized this new virus on the planet. That is remarkable speed. And the rollout, despite all the hiccups and the politics and the issues, the rollout has not gone that badly. People are getting vaccinated. And they're getting vaccinated quickly. So I I'm, remain optimistic. And actually, if you look at the latest data out of Israel, where you know they have the highest proportion of the population vaccinated and ask the question, is it actually working? Which is what counts in the end. It's not just the vaccination, but is it working? Uh, it, it is remarkable how quickly the incidence of COVID in that country, which, which went from being very high 
to now being very low over the last uh, month. It's just remarkable. Okay, well, let's come back to that in a moment. But like, let's like keep the camera pulled back for a moment before we uh, come in for some close-up shots. And you know, just four months after the approval of the first vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, you know, what for you is the good news, and what is the bad news that we're facing? What's going well, and what's not going so well? So, first of all, I would share Alan's perspective that uh, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago at this time. I certainly would not have been in the camp of people predicting we would have had a vaccine by now. I think even 18, you know, people are, if we're talking about 18 months would be the fastest to get to a vaccine um, and more like three or four years. So it is unbelievable that we got so far so quickly. And also that uh, from the time of approval of the first vaccines back, as you said, four months ago, we have made so much progress. I, I think I'm also if you had asked me about what kinds of hiccups we were going to face, we are, those are the things we are seeing. The logistics in trying to distribute this amount of vaccine globally are unbelievable. The logistics of doing it in a country as vast as Canada. So the fact that we are making as much progress despite all the negative attention on every single hiccup, I think is really uh, amazing. And I'd also note that, uh, you know, I think we were, many people were predicting higher levels of vaccine hesitancy or vaccine refusal, and that may still change. But I think the level of acceptance that we have in our population is actually really meaningful and will make a big difference. The final thing I'll just comment on, uh, you know, we would, could have easily predicted some of the things that we're seeing, such as uh, the issue with adverse events. When you start to immunize, and as Alan said, 400 million doses, bad things are going to happen to people. People die every day. And so just by chance, people who've had the vaccine in the last two weeks will die, will have adverse medical conditions, and we can predict the rate at which those things are going to happen. And, and sometimes we will see very unusual clusters as we've seen. And probably what we have to do a better job is explaining to the population and, and people receiving the vaccine why those bad things are happening, their chance, uh, they're not necessarily related to the vaccine. Thanks, Vivek. I think we'll get into some of those communication pieces uh, towards, towards the end of the conversation because we find that fascinating too. But I just wanted to ask, you know, right now we're vaccinating about 150,000 Canadians a day. Um, you are the founding president and CEO of Ontario Public Health. What does the logistics look like of setting up such a massive organization like this? So... Uh... And during the time that I was uh, at Public Health Ontario, I was uh, part of the immunization campaign done for H1N1 back in 2009. And we had the good fortune then, it was essentially the seasonal influenza, right? And, and so it was that year's seasonal influenza campaign became the pandemic campaign. And across the country, we reached about 40% of people that got it. And that was sufficient at that time to bring that uh, pandemic under control. We have to do much better this time. And you know, from the numbers you just described, we have to get it well in excess of 200,000 uh, a day. I think it's about 250,000 a day if we're gonna reach the targets that the prime minister has set. And so if you start to think, first of all, we gotta get the vaccine and we have all the issues about manufacturing where it's coming from. And then we have to get it distributed across the country and, and to remote regions, to northern regions. Some of the vaccines have very specific handling requirements, which we can come back to. Um, but beyond getting the vaccine, uh, we also have all the other supplies that are necessary, the syringes, uh, the swabs, the band-aids. So there's a big complex supply chain to be managed. And all those things have to arrive at the same time in every one of those locations, right? And then you need the people. So you need the people who can immunize and to get to those numbers, which are well double or triple what we do, even on our best day with seasonal influenza, we need way more immunizers. And meanwhile, our healthcare system is still dealing with COVID. So you can't just start to pull people away, doctors and nurses to do the immunization. And then the final thing, and probably the big challenge that Canada continues to face is you need to manage all of that information. 
You need to manage the bookings, when people have had their vaccine, when they're due again. Um, and we need to be able to take that data to track what levels of coverage we're getting and to track for adverse events. And so combine all of those things together, you know, typically when you roll out a major sort of new system, or if you're a company rolling out a product, it looks uh, pretty amazing when Apple announces their new lineup, but it's usually a few months before it starts to hit the stores and there's lineups and things like that. We're doing all of these things in real time with huge amounts of media attention. So it's not surprising that we see a few hiccups along the way. Well, you know, you're describing them as hiccups and, you know, you guys are both very knowledgeable and very reasoned, but it has seemed from time to time chaotic beyond, you know, the natural chaos of science changing and instructions changing. I mean, you know, obviously new knowledge is being acquired and people that are adjusting to that new knowledge, is, which is one thing. But, you know, we've known a vaccine was coming, was going to have to come. We didn't know exactly when. And it seems that people didn't really start getting organized till October, November. That's the way it felt. Generals were only appointed at that point. And then, you know, will pharmacies be in or pharmacies not be in? And when will pharmacies be in? You know, ha has it just been hiccups or has it been a little bit of inattention until attention was absolutely required? Well, one thing we should remember is we, we weren't expecting, even with the remarkable speed of getting making these vaccines, we weren't actually expecting delivery until mid-January to mid-February. That was sort of the, the most reliable projection. And then all of a sudden, it started hitting you know, the stores, as it were, in December. Uh, and, and so I think the, the, everybody was sort of caught unawares at the speed at which this happened. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing Ed, is there never has been a rollout of a vaccine that has been followed so closely by everybody, not just in Canada, but around the world as this one. And of course, for, for understandable reasons. And so there's always hiccups when a new product, especially a new vaccine is rolled out. We just don't notice it because we're not following it that closely. So I think we need to kind of cut some slack uh, a bit, which is not to say that the rollout has been perfect. I'm not suggesting that. But nothing that really happens in life is perfect. Uh, it's just that this one matters more than anything else, and so it's magnified. And the, the hiccups, as Vivek said, we notice them because, you know, lots, of, lots at stake. But that's the way the world is. But the fact is we are now at around 125,000 a day, uh, we are going to go up to as, uh, go up to 250 as the Americans now are, and perhaps beyond. Uh, I think we will achieve that if the delivery you know keeps up. So I, again, I'm kind of surprised we're at the point we're at now, where things are going so quickly. And we've been comparing ourselves, of course, to other countries, uh, and we're you know we're we're 36 in the rankings, et cetera, et cetera. But again, if you look at the the G7 or the G20 countries, they're, they're in a pact. And there's not much difference between, we're number six, I think, in the G7, and the US is number one, or the UK is number one, actually. But between the US, leaving aside the UK and the US for a moment, and I'm happy to discuss them, if you go number to three to six, to Canada, Canada up to France, I think it is, we're pretty well neck and neck. And who knows where that will be in a few weeks. So I'm actually, will I have liked my vaccine, you know, a month ago? Absolutely. Uh, I'm scheduled to get one later on this week, but I still think that things are going remarkably well, given all the things that, that Vivek discussed and the, the urgency that we all feel and the impatience we all feel to get this done as quickly as possible. We're, we're all kind of, not to belittle it at all, because I think this is serious, but we're all kind of like children in the back of the car saying to our parents, are we there yet? Uh, you know, we all we all want to be there. Which starts the moment you leave the driveway at home. Right? <laughs> you have children, Ed, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we, we all want to be there. Uh, and it's understandable. I'll just add, Ed, that, uh, you know, surely, uh, certainly some of the planning work could have, should have started earlier. But we have to remember that uh, until some of the additional capacity started to get brought in, 
um, the Army team that got assigned to Public Health Agency Canada, the various task forces being struck, the people in the health system, public health, that would have traditionally thought about these things were really busy managing the first wave, the second wave, everything else, right? And so even as you bring in all this extra capacity, you're still reliant on a small set of people who know how these kinds of programs work, who've done H1N1 or the seasonal influenza and so on. And, and so, you know, you have some rate limiting uh, capacity there. Uh, you know, it, again, something we come back to is, should we have had more investments in public health all along? I'll certainly argue for that. And, sh- uh, you know, the things that got cut in p- our public health agencies that got built up after SARS, including Inter- Public Health Ontario, you know, its budget got cut substantially after I left as president, no cause and effect there, but if that capacity had still been there, we could have probably managed some of these things differently. The other element I'll just add to what Alan said is there are a lot of unknowns that weren't apparent until very late in the game. So the special handling requirements for the Pfizer vaccine, I don't think really entered into the general planning until late into the fall, right, Alan? Yes. And, And so, you know, a lot of things that people were thinking about, like, okay, family physicians, offices, pharmacies, all of a sudden had to be put on hold because the first vaccine that we got couldn't go into those settings. And so what, again, appears to be lack of coordination or lack of planning is this changing environment. And, and so you can see as soon as we start to get this AstraZeneca vaccine, we are starting to see the move to the more traditional sorts of approaches to vaccination programs. And as the J&J vaccine finally starts to get manufactured, I think we'll start to see things looking much more like we're used to seeing with these types of programs. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go back, Alan, to the point you just made about, you know, the US and the UK. I think part of this conversation as well has been manufacturing capacity. And, you know, with Canada, of course, we're really um, at the will of other countries and, and other companies and their willingness to, to provide us with vaccines, uh, which we can get it a little bit more into. But, you know, you've been commenting in the Globe and Mail recently on manufacturing capacity, but Vivek, as I understand, you also wrote an article about four years ago on this exact topic. So what does that look like and, and what has that gap created for us here in COVID-19 and, and what can we learn going forward? Well, I think the first thing we've and the most obvious thing we've learned is that we need to fix this. We can't rely um, even on our closest friends to supply us with vaccines in the situation of a global emergency like the one we're in right now. So uh, I think we need to fix it. The fix will not come overnight. That's the, again, the other issue, the impatience that we all feel. But the government has been making investments across the country actually in production capacity uh, existing and expanding pre- uh, existing production capacity as a first step. Um, I'm part of a subcommittee in the uh, part of the federal vaccine task force looking at manu- biomanufacturing. And we've been uh, consulting with Canadians, mostly from the industry, about their vision for what this should look like to advise the government going forward. And so, again, I think everybody's on the pretty well on the same page that we need to fix it. Uh, there's a couple of things that we should keep in mind. It's not just the final you know, plant that has these huge vats that's churning out vaccine. Uh, it's also all the ingredients that go into the vaccines, all the chemicals. So typical vaccine can have dozens and dozens of different chemicals that have to go into to the vaccine. So these supply chains of the chemicals, of the vials, of the stoppers, of the needles, are also critical if we want to be self-reliant. So it's not just the plant itself. I think the other thing is that we, we need to have, you know, the machines, the, the high throughput machines that can churn out 125,000, you know, vials of vaccine, or if they're more than one, you know, shot per person per vial, then somewhat less than that. But we need to churn out tens of thousands of vaccine vials every day if we're gonna be able to scale up at a level that's appropriate for this country, not to mention exporting to other countries, of course. So there's a a lot of, and then the final thing we need are are people. Uh, Although a lot of this is automated, we need trained engineers and scientists 
uh, to actually manage these, these huge facilities, which are very sophisticated, very complicated, and we need resources. And of course, luckily, pandemics don't come along every year. And so those plants can't sit idle in between. We need a sort of a business plan that ensures that they're churning out you know, our seasonal flu vaccines or measles vaccines for kids all the time. So it's not just sitting idle. So this is a not just straightforward, we need a plan for COVID-19. And of course, there's different platforms just to complicate it a little bit further. So we have, for example, the RNA vaccines, the viral vector vaccines like AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson, the protein subunit vaccines. So the vaccine that Novavax uh, is making, uh, and we just saw some preliminary results from that trial. They're very impressive. I imagine the Novavax vaccine is gonna be approved soon. So there's different platforms for making these vaccines. And so we need to have the capacity for making all of those because we don't know which one will be the most successful next time around. Indeed, we don't know whether there'll be a new platform next time around. We didn't have RNA vaccines uh, you know, two years ago. Um, and so we need a pipeline of high level research coming out of our universities to feed that pipeline of leading edge science so that we, we are part of the global effort to keep improving the vaccine science and vaccine technology uh, as, as what happened with the RNA vaccines. So this is a, a big issue that won't be fixed overnight, but I think, I think the federal government is on it and is working on it, but it won't be an overnight fix for this pandemic this time around. Now, if the pandemic lasts for the next two or three years, not out of the question, but certainly the next year, we might have, you know, the prime minister announced a, a, a deal with Novavax to make their protein subunit vaccine at the Quebec facility. That, that facility might be ready in time while we are still dealing with COVID-19. Just want to add, add that it's you know there's a long history of sort of policy issues that have led to the state that Canada found itself in, right? And it's not you know certainly I agree with everything Alan's saying, but it's not just about building that manufacturing capacity, which you know the federal government is um, pushing ahead on, which is is wonderful, and the talent that we're going to need to run it, and all the other supply chain issues. But we also need to think about what it's going to take for Canada to restore itself um, to a, a place where it is part of the global um, pharmaceutical system, so to speak. Um, because you know, through the last 50 years or so, we've had this major consolidation of the global pharmaceutical companies, and and you know, Canada really allowed itself, and I'll pray, I say that very particularly to uh, get shut out of that system. And um, those companies chose to build the majority of their manufacturing facilities in other parts of the world. And it wasn't just um, you know, putting them into cheaper wage countries, because as we can see, a lot of the manufacturing is being done in the United States and Europe. And so we have to ask ourselves the questions, why did that happen? Could you answer that question for because I think we're all very interested in why that happened. Yeah. And when you say allowed ourselves you know, yeah. to be shut out, yeah. you know, how do we allow ourselves? So one is our policies around patents and intellectual property uh, protections led the major pharmaceutical companies to not want to invest in R&D in Canada and development in Canada in particular. Our policies around uh, purchasing of both drugs and vaccines and price controls, again, led to us being seen as a jurisdiction that didn't welcome sort of the brand name or as they call themselves now, the innovative pharmaceutical companies. And, and we quite honestly, we supported the generic manufacturing industry. There were good reasons for that, right? It was from a healthcare cost system perspective and so on, we did that. And the final thing, and this again, reflects on my time at, at Public Health Ontario, we do have two uh, major vaccine manufacturing plants in Canada, one run by Sanofi, it's the former Connaught Labs in Downsview in Toronto, and then there's a Glaxo uh, GSK plant in Quebec City, which I think is an outgrowth of the other major sort of vaccine legacy in, in Canada, the Institut Montfrappier. 
So the, those two plants both still make vaccines, but neither of them have the capacity to do what's needed, uh, the kinds of vaccines that Alan was talking about. But I remember talking with the, the leader, the Canadian leaders of both of those companies, and they would describe the challenge that they face in getting the manufacturing mandate for their plants in Canada. You know, those global companies have to invest capital to keep up with the latest vaccines. And if they're choosing between investing in Brussels or New Jersey or someplace in Canada, they will look at a variety of factors. And one of them is, are Canadian governments going to procure the vaccine that gets manufactured, right? And, and I say governments because it's the provinces that buy the vaccines. And, and so you get into all these issues because you know, quite often those companies would get the mandates to make the va vaccine here, but then the provincial governments wouldn't buy those vaccines. They bought them from another manufacturer. Let me just cut in on this for half a second because it's very, it's very interesting. I think the history, I think it's important that we understand this history even more. Hmm. And you know, for those with very long memories in some way, like myself, you one can remember that the Mulroney government, you know, brought in policies to favor, you know, longer patents and to promote investment by the pharmaceutical industry in Canada. You know, so I keep wondering what happened to that. Uh, if you have a very short memory and happen to be paying any attention over the Christmas holidays, which isn't a good idea, you would have seen that the government of Canada was about to bring in a regime that would have brought damp and meant to push prices down. And then it took a six month holiday on, on making uh, that decision. And, and therefore, I'm just wondering if what you're telling us is that there's you know, going to have to be a trade-off between whether we're going to have investment and whether we're going to be very tough on pricing. I mean, is there a trade-off there? So I, I would look at it actually a little bit differently. And uh, I think there's some other factors at play. Uh, just to add to the list that Vivek uh, gave us. One is, and I agree with the, the points that Vivek made, but I'll add a few. A few. One is, um, we're a small market. Um, so even if every province and the federal government were aligned and said, we're all going to buy vaccine X, you know, we're at most now 38 million people. You know, 25 years ago, we were less than that, obviously. The U.S. is a 10 times larger market. The U.K. is, you know, roughly one and a half to two times larger market. The EU now is a 10 times larger market or 20 times larger market. So we, we are a small market. And so uh, for a company to establish here, uh, they're making an investment in a small market. It's hard to justify that. The second point is what's happened over the last 50 years is the biotech industry sprung up. The biotech industry is a completely revolutionary disruptive uh, force in terms of uh, uh, drug manufacture. It used to be chemists made drugs. All of a sudden with the biotech industry, molecular biologists were making drugs. Just to remind you, insulin now is made, was made by Genentech from the gene for coding for insulin, not by purifying the protein as a, as a chemistry exercise. So there was a revolution in the biopharmaceutical industry that was causing huge cost containment and every large drug company were cons was consolidating <coughs> their efforts closer to head office. Head offices are not in Canada, head offices are in the United States, the UK, France and Switzerland by and large. So we were a victim of all that independent of any, US, any Canadian government policy. So it's not, no accident today that we're seeing the legacy of that. BioNTech is a small biotech company. Moderna was a small biotech company. They don't have the capacity to do these large trials or large manufacturing. And so BioNTech turned to Pfizer um, and actually Moderna turned to the US NIH and the US government. So I think we're seeing a global kind of consolidation going on. Uh, I think the other, the last thing I'll say about this is, I think we've always viewed our role as a customer. We buy vaccines as opposed to being a partner. And so if you look at what President Trump did when he was president, it's probably one of the, to be political for a second, one of the few good things he did. 
He said, we are a partner with the drug companies. We need to make vaccines to deal with this pandemic. And so he created Operation Warp Speed and put billions of dollars into it to help US drug companies by and large, by and large US companies make these vaccines. We simply don't have that buying power uh, to do that. The European Union viewed themselves simply as a, as a customer and look at the mess they're in today. That's a point that was made very forcefully in the, in the New York Times this, uh, this morning, actually. So um, I think we have to now start viewing ourselves as a partner going forward with the biopharmaceutical industry. And we are, in fact, a partner because we fund the research, the fundamental research through our, through our universities, through the granting councils, that is all public funds. Um, and the government is investing in these manufacturing plants and will continue to do so. So we are in fact a partner, but we've never thought about ourselves that way. So I think that has to change. Uh, and I think it is changing pretty quickly. And just quickly, uh, your memory is absolutely correct. The Mulroney government did reverse some of the trends, but if you think about it in a 50 or 60 year time horizon, that was a short window time when we went in the opposite direction, but otherwise throughout those decades, it's really been more around the controls on pricing controls on intellectual property. And, and certainly, as you noted, the current government actually had some pretty restrictive measures that they've had uh, ready to go for several years. And I think quite honestly, this is just speculation on my part, part of the reason for delaying was that they were in the midst of negotiations with some of these pharmaceutical companies to get the vaccines. And if they had proceeded with that, our picture may not have been even as good as it is right now. I want to pivot the conversation a bit uh, to talk about, uh, you know, we talked about how Canada has been able to ramp up and will continue to, but part of that seems to me to be because of kind of the shifting second dose uh, guidelines that we've, we've adopted broadly. And I'd love to unpack a little bit more what some of the kind of conventional wisdom is here and, you know, we're hearing about mixing of, of second doses and things like that. Um, would you mind just commenting on on what that looks like. And if, again, that strategy to get the first dose into more people will be, I guess, effective in the long term. So just let's start at the beginning here. The trials that were done that was approved by Health Canada uh, were done uh, with, the, with the RNA vaccines, were done separating the first and second doses by three or four weeks. So let's say a month, just to keep it simple. Uh, it's not to say that a month separation is optimal, but that's just what was done. Uh, we don't really know beyond that what the data would be if it had been six weeks or eight weeks or the current uh, 16 weeks that a lot of provinces have, have moved to. Uh, we have really no data in the real world on, on the 16-week uh, interval. And th that was based on a recommendation that the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, that NACI Federal Advisory Committee made, uh, and the three provinces BC, Ontario, and Quebec immediately went up to that 16 weeks. I think everybody would agree, including the chair of NACI, that if we had, you know, 100 million doses of vaccine tomorrow, we would stick to the protocol that was approved by Health Canada and was done in those trials, uh, the three or four weeks, because that's where we have uh, the best data. And we know that the efficacy, at least of the RNA vaccines, is 95%, uh, which is basically 100% protection uh, in the efficacy trials that, that were done. So I think the thinking was this is largely being driven by a shortage of vaccines. And you know it's, it's hard not to uh, sympathize or to understand the driver that it is important to vaccinate as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And so the sort of the, the dilemma that we're in is do you give everybody one dose first, and that may take 16 weeks, and then start giving people their second dose, knowing that we really don't know whether 16 weeks is, is good or bad or optimal or not. All we know is the three or four weeks based on the trials, or, or do you change it? So I think what's happening though is that those rulings were made at a certain point in time. I think what we're now seeing is that we're getting starting to get more vaccines coming into the country. 
And indeed, I would argue, and I'm trying to find sort of a middle ground here that will work both from a public health point of view and where the science of these vaccines is what, what is telling us. I think as Americans start to wind down their vaccination campaign, which now looks like it's gonna to happen towards the end of May, as they start to wind down, more vaccines are gonna become available, of course, for the rest of the world, including Canada. And so I think we can expect that as much as we're getting more and more vaccines coming into the country now, we're getting 2 million doses of Pfizer this week, for example, we can expect even more coming in potentially by, by May or June, in which case the 16 week interval may not be necessary to make sure that everyone's vaccinated at least once and then a second time to ensure. And I think there's lots of scientific reasons why you need that second dose. So just to be clear, the, the reasons are at least threefold. One is uh, that's where we have the best data. Number two, we know uh, for lots of vaccines that including this one actually in experimental animals, that that second dose is what you need to sort of get memory, long-term durability uh, protection uh, from the virus. Um, and so we don't wanna vaccinate everybody every two months, that's, that's obvious. We need to protect people for a long period of time, as long as possible. The third thing we know is that the robustness of the immune response, the size of the immune response is greater after that second dose. It's called kind of a boost for a reason. It boosts the immune response to a higher level. Um, and again, in seniors, that where seniors have a weakened immune response, boosting from a very low level to something higher is gonna be important just to get protection, not just to get a boost, but to be above some threshold value that you need to get protection. And then the fourth reason is that we know with these variants now, the one out of the UK, the B117, but especially the one called B351, that's the one out of South Africa. We know that the, most of the vaccines actually are effective against the South African variant, but they're not as effective as they are against the normal virus. So we need an even larger immune response to be able to deal with a South African virus. So the worry is if you space the doses, 16 weeks apart, the boost may not, be, may not give you that boost that you really need to get above the threshold to protect you against 351. In the very population that's the most vulnerable to this virus, that is the older population. So I think there's lots of reasons why we wanna space those vaccines, the, the right dosage. Now, I, 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 we don't know what exactly is the optimum spacing, all we know is what the data is, which is three to four weeks. Um, NASI's initial recommendation was to go up to six weeks maximum, 42 days, which is probably about the right number if we could get enough doses into the country. So my, my recommendation would be that's where we should be aiming uh, to deal with the variants and to deal with everybody. And we may not need to vaccinate everybody under the age of 40 right away. People under the age of 40 are not that susceptible to serious disease by this virus. So we could start giving a second dose to older Canadians first before we start going under the age of 40. And if you do the math, and if you assume that a lot of vaccines coming in, um, I, I think we'd be, we'd be okay. And is there a world where there's a mix and match of the second dose? So again, with mix and match, we'd have to do a trial to see whether it works. But there are lots of precedents for doing that, or not lots, but there are precedents for doing that. And there are reasons, again, for thinking that this might work here. We have two broad arms of our immune system. We, we have a, uh, one arm makes antibodies, and the other arm is called our cellular immune response. Those are the two major arms of our immune system. The RNA vaccines tend to preferentially stimulate the antibody response. Whereas the, R, the viral vector vaccines like the AstraZeneca tend to sort of also activate preferentially the cellular arm. So if you mix and match, you might get the best of both worlds uh, as well as the availability issues, what, what you're getting at. So I think there's good reasons why we should consider a mix and match, but we need to do a trial to see whether that's actually gonna be what I just said. 
whether it's going to be optimal or not. And that trial is being contemplated in the UK and also here in Canada. Just a final point on this before we, we move on, but, uh, you know, you talk about variants and, and kind of boosters. Is there also the potential that there will be kind of a new booster on the market to deal specifically with those variants that may take the place of a second dose? Yes, there was a very, Moderna has already started a trial of a, of a second generation vaccine. I wouldn't call it a booster, but a second generation vaccine that's designed specifically to deal with both the South African and the Brazilian variants. Uh, and so if that turns out to be safe and approved by Health Canada, yeah, I think we're looking at a scenario where like influenza virus, where we get our annual flu shots, we might need a, another round of vaccinations to deal with these variants. Vic, let's stick with variants for half a moment here, because uh, I think people are a little bit anxious about about variants at a moment when I think they're becoming more optimistic, other than the variant question. So are we are we in a somewhat of a race here between vaccination development, vaccination administration, and variants? And you know, as per what Alan's saying, are we going to be adjusting vaccines as we go along? Uh, very quickly to, you know, to get at these variants, and who knows, there may be more. So absolutely, in the coming weeks, uh, we are in a race with the variants or with the virus at, at large, and um, we have to get as many people protected as possible um, to minimize what the impact from the variant surge or wave, third wave uh, will be. And uh, we've already had a very significant impact. And so something we haven't talked about is, you know, long-term care outbreaks and deaths have almost come to an end in Canada. And, and so even without the Israeli evidence that Alan cited earlier, we can see the impact that the immunization program has had. And so the more of our highest risk populations that we can get the vaccine into, the remaining po older population, people with pre-existing health conditions, the people working in the uh, occupations where they have the highest exposures, that we will start to reduce what the burden of the disease is. But it is right the case that right now in many parts of the country, um, the variants, certainly in Ontario now, the variants uh, are representing the majority of the cases. Uh, that are being diagnosed every day. I think uh, BC and Alberta will be there in a matter of weeks. If we don't get things under control, as we saw in the UK with the variants, uh, it will take off very uh, quickly. The other thing I'll just emphasize is, you know, initially the worry about the variants was that they were more transmissible. For the last few weeks, uh, we've had data come out that at least the B117, uh, the one first identified in the UK, actually leads to a higher mortality rate. So it is more uh, severe. And, and that's where I might just uh, put a caution around uh, Alan's point that, you know, maybe we could hold off on uh, reaching the under 40s, for example. If it turns out that the variants are actually more severe and spreading in that population, the impact on uh, adverse health outcomes could still be very severe in the younger populations as compared to with the earlier versions of the virus. Well, I sense a, a desire on the part of both of you to drive a wedge between Katie and me on generational taxation here. And, you know, I'm not too sure we're going to stand for that. Yes, I, I'm, I'm jealous of Ed already. So it'll, it'll keep going as the days pass. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I already have yeah, exactly a boomer enmity coming my way. So look, let's end for now on this. And I, I, I say for now because I think there's a whole other important discussion that both of you have opened up around industrial strategy if you will, in, in this area and, and how, you know, how we're going to prosecute questions of, you know, consumer good and, and larger investment good and how much is Canadian and how much is attracting investment and these things. And we can't go as deeply as I think I want to go on that. So I think, you know, I, I hope that we can come back and you know, revisit some of those questions, but just to wrap for now and where all this takes us, uh, Vivek, you're about to become on July 1st the uh, president of the University of Waterloo, and we want to congratulate you, a great university, uh, which is gaining a great leader in, in you. So when students would be scheduled to come back in the fall, 
what kind of world do you think we're going to have? Do you think you're going to have in-class learning? Where do you expect that will be next September or at least during the course of the fall? Great question. And I just want to pick up on your intergenerational equity comment because I think it relates to the students as well. We really do have to take account of the fact that the brunt of the public health measures that we have taken to protect our older, more vulnerable populations, the brunt of those measures has been borne by our young. And they've been borne by children in school, in post-secondary education. And they're gonna bear this for the entire generations to come, right? You know, Stats Can has estimated what the impact on lifelong learning is gonna be. So, you know, I, you know, I know you were sort of <laughs> making that point in perhaps in jest, but like there's a very serious element to that. And, and so that's why, you know, I think aiming to bring back as much of our learning to our campuses as possible for September is a top priority for every university and college in the, in the country. We'll have had close to three terms by the time um, uh, September rolls around. I don't think it's gonna be exactly what people had in January of 2020. Um, I don't see that we will have large classes back, but actually that's not necessarily a bad thing. We always, you know, behind me is Convocation Hall um, where, you know, we have classes of in excess of a thousand and we found better ways to deliver the knowledge that was happening in there. But, you know, we can bring labs back, we can bring small group uh, learning sessions back, and then we can continue to work on how we evolve some of the other things. I think the other critical thing for our post-secondary institutions is going to be the restoration of international travel. And to pick up on Alan's point, until we get the vaccine around the world, we're not all going back. We, we could get everyone in Canada, United States, and Europe immunized, but we're not necessarily going to be able to have all our international students coming back into the country until we get that global immunization campaign done. So that's going to continue to have a lasting impact for several years to come. And Alan, why don't you just finish on the same point? You mentioned earlier how the United States might be finished its vaccine program by the end of May. When does that restore a normalcy or is it an entirely new normal that we see? You know, Yogi Berra said predicting the future isn't what it used to be. Uh, so I'm always uh, kind of reluctant about predicting the future. I don't think we really know what that you know, new normal is going to look like and when that's going to happen. I mean, certainly already we're seeing in the United States a much more reverting back to something that resembles normal much faster than here. And partly cultural is partly uh, the vaccination rate is much higher, but their death rate and incidence rate is still higher than, than here in Canada, despite all of the above. So uh, I think it may be country specific for a while in terms of what, what things start to look like. I think Canadians have been exceptional in following the sort of basic public health rules, distancing, wearing masks, washing their hands. Um, and so now that the, the vaccines are, are here and, and coming in increasing numbers, I think we have a very good chance in this country of going back to a, a real normalcy like we had uh, before, provided we win this race against the variants as you started that conversation, Ed. And, and provided uh, we stick to basic public health rules, they're not going to go away just because we've been vaccinated. It takes a while for the vaccine to kick in. You need the second dose. And everybody else that you're interacting with needs to be vaccinated. So uh, I'm optimistic that we will, we will have something normal. I'm not willing to predict when, but I think we will be approaching that shortly. But you're absolutely right. Uh, go back to the, the global issue, just to end on that we need to vaccinate everybody on the planet. And just, just to remind people, the B351, the South African variant, the so-called immune escape variant, which is uh, quite dangerous because it's resistant or partially resistant to our vaccines. It came from South Africa. The virus mutated in South Africa and got here somehow, despite all our border restrictions. So we will not be safe until everybody in South Africa, and by extension, until everybody in the world is vaccinated. That's just the reality of the world we live in today. Um, and so it's in our interest and in Americans' interest and the EU's interest to, to look after the rest of the world as quickly as possible as well. 
Well, thank you both so much for this uh, really interesting and fascinating conversation. As Ed mentioned, I think we just scratched the surface on a number of these topics, and I think we'll really look forward connecting again. Uh, it's been particularly my pleasure because I, uh, I host PPF's uh, vaccine skepticism work uh, that we're doing, but it's mostly uh, relying on public opinion polling. So digging into the policy and, and kind of the weeds on this piece has been really a pleasure uh, with you both. So thank you so much. Welcome. And let me just thank you also, and, uh, and just to build on what Katie said, I think with greater knowledge, you have a greater public confidence. And, and of course, this is a difficult issue on which to communicate because it's so changeable, because we're learning, you know, as we go and, you know, messages have to change as we go. But, you know, I think the more that we can uh, hear from people like yourselves who, who follow this very closely, have expertise and can place it in context, it builds, you know, real confidence, not marketing confidence, but uh, genuine knowledge confidence. So, uh, you know, I want to thank you for, you know, spending time with us and for being friends of uh, the Public Policy Forum. And we do have some more subjects to cover. So consider this an official invitation back. Happy to come back. Our pleasure. Anytime with Vivek. At this point in the podcast, we'd like to take a moment to highlight one of our members that has gone above and beyond the call of duty in terms of their contribution ongoing to a stronger and more resilient Canada. This week, we want to say that we are PPF proud of our member, Microsoft Canada. Microsoft has recently collaborated with NPower, Blueprint, and the Government of Canada through Canada's Digital Technology Supercluster to launch the Canadian Tech Talent Accelerator. This will be a 15-week online skills training and job placement program that will equip 2,500, that's a big number, 2,500 unrepresented youth, 18 to 29 years old, for in-demand digital careers across Canada. The Canadian Tech Talent Accelerator supports Canada's future by providing in-demand technology skills to young Canadians who are underrepresented in our economy and who we want to get properly represented, and it prepares them for the digital workforce of the future and of the present and supports Canada's economic recovery and their own participation in them. So for all of you, PPF is a membership-based organization. Uh, Microsoft is an active and supportive member, and we'd like you to be an active and supportive member too. We appreciate everyone's support. You're all on the front lines of something important that's happening and you have knowledge to feed into the public policy forum and hopefully the public policy forum has knowledge and an ability to discuss issues that are important to you. So great two-way value in being part of the PPF family. We welcome your interest and why don't you have a look at the membership page of our website, ppforum.ca to find out more. And that's a wrap for this week's episode. And if you liked it, please leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Reviews help us be seen by new listeners and understand what's working for our existing listeners. To that end, share it with a friend or let us know directly on Twitter at ppformca. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast happen. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn and this has been Policy Speaking.